1: Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College. In this episode, Danielle Island piper Chris Yuleman, and John Birmingham join Dale Stanley to discuss the role of fiction in national security and policymaking. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Nambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past and present.
2: John, Chris, and Danielle, welcome to the National Security Podcast.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us, Dale. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about fiction in national security and what a great topic, gets me very excited. So I'm really pleased to have you here so we can talk about this today. I'll probably kick off with a pretty open question and I might turn to you first, John, if I could. What is your favourite security-themed fictional novel? that really drew you in and why?
3: Well, other than uh, Chris's, uh, of course, uh, I really liked Ghost Fleet, which came out, um, oh, it's probably three or four years ago now. It was a couple of uh, American national security academics um, and, uh, you know, they they had a, an axe to grind and I, I, I thought they did that pretty well. And there was um, it was a James Stavridis uh did a novel about conflict with China I think it was 2032 would have come out in the last know, 18 months or something like that and he actually teamed up with a um, a proper writer some big L literature guy who really buffed the whole thing to a to a high sheen there was some really nice um, character moments in that where it, it didn't feel like you were you know writing or sorry reading nat set literature it just felt like Big L literature. It's good.
2: Great. Chris, what about you?
0: Yeah, well, I should return the, the compliment to John, of course, because he's a much storied author and I was just simply a hobbyist with the stuff that I was doing with Steve Lewis. But Ghost Fleet for sure, Peter Singer and Augustine August Cole, I think, uh, teamed up on that mm, one. That's right. An Australian one, Bruni by Heather Rose, just because I don't find it impossible having worked in politics to believe that Australian politicians might sell the whole of Tasmania to China. <laughs> but as I was thinking about this yesterday and the book that stayed me ever since I was uh, read it when I was 16 years old is, Animal Farm and I think deserves rereading in this era when we're talking about information warfare and the capacity of skilled propagandists to essentially erase the truth. I think that novel and of course 1984 essentially are you know the the masterpieces of their kind when it comes to that kind of literature.
2: Mm. Tony, what about you? You're an avid reader here with some very esteemed authors.
4: Yeah, look, I mean, the wonderful works of present company excluded, I've already been a groupie with Chris this morning on on the books that gave rise to um, Secret City, and recently reread um, He Died with a Falafel in His Hand, which is a different sort of security question, I guess. But um, uh, those those wonderful <laughs> those wonderful um, works aside, I guess the two that come to my mind might be sort of non traditional works. Um, But Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, I read when I was about 13 years old and was so traumatising at the time that I haven't actually watched the series since, which is of course not to discredit the series, which I hear is very good. But that novel, um, in my mind, gave real cause for me to feel motivated about engaging in public life because of where things can head if power is misused and misunderstood and then the other one I do um, refer to is The Reluctant Fundamentalist, um, which I refer to in my blog, but I just think that's a brilliant book and I love um, that it was written in uh, such a um, sort of culturally specific time and place and I think that gives insights into sort of radicalization and what have you that we couldn't have gotten from, from another author. Um, so that's uh, Mohsin Hamid.
2: Yes. Mm, great. Thank you. I guess the question for some of our listeners might be, why would we put these two things together? Why is uh, fiction and national security important to think about in combination? How do you think about those two things when you're doing your work, John, and you're um, writing new novels and coming up with new ideas?
3: Look, I, weirdly enough, I, I do think about it, um, which makes me feel like a bit of a plonker sometimes. But uh Uh, I, my background, um, was national security. I graduated, uh, with an international relations degree and I went off and worked for defense and, and quite enjoyed it. I just, uh, uh, I didn't like living in Canberra. Sorry, you know, (laughs) south side of Brisbane for the win. Um, so I, I, I had my, my foot in that camp from an early start. And when I, you know, I did 10 years of journalism before I did fiction. Um, and having eventually, Moved into fiction. I, I found I still had all my earliest obsessions, and fiction is a way for me to to work them out. So I, I did a series for Audible, um, uh, probably about two years ago, and it's just come out of uh, the the exclusive Audible Jail recently. And it was about a, a cyber attack gone wrong, um, and uh, part like you know, partly that was you know. It was just me doing my job, paying my mortgage, putting food on the table. But once I had decided to uh, write that topic and, and research into it, I just—I I do what I always do. I just fell headfirst and just went deeper and deeper and deeper into the research and got more and more obsessed with the idea of the fragility of supply chains and just how vulnerable just-in-time uh, distribution. Um, Methods are, particularly as regards to food distribution in hyper-complex first world cities. And that's the kind of thing that I am quite happy sitting and reading journal article after research paper, after obscure, unreadable thesis, week after week, month after month. Most people aren't. Um, Most people just want a good story. And so you know, I'll tell them the good story because that's how I pay my mortgage, but I try and package up some, you know, some nuggets of uh, things in there they might want to think about.
2: And what makes a good story for you, John? What are the key elements in storytelling
3: uh, you, need, you need believable characters. Um, it's you know, one of the things that does happen in, you know, this, this line of, of writing with this genre is you, you do get very wooden, cut-out characters. That was the thing I loved about Stev Ridi's novel, actually. I, I think teaming up with, um, uh, you know, the, the writer whose name I have disgracefully forgotten, it, he did some amazing work on um, the characters in that book. So you you need great characters to tell your story, uh, and I, I guess you know if there's people out like there who are thinking of writing, um, just a little tip: you you need to know what you're going to write before you write it, and then you need to execute on that plan with fo- focus and rigor. Um, and if you do that, you'll you know you'll serve up a story that most people will will fall into. Uh, It's like the the promise. I think it's on the first or second page of of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs that you will forget you are reading this, and that is that's what you're aiming for. You you want people to forget.
2: Mm. And Chris, as a political editor, you're seeing real world national security issues play out day to day. How do you bring that together with your sort of imagination and um, experiences in how you write and think about? Fiction.
0: Yeah, and look, I was working with a co-author, of course, Steve Lewis, and he also worked in federal politics at the time, has since moved on from there. And look, it, it was, it's kind of a bit ragtag at the beginning in that we had a thought about, like I had an idea for a satire, he wanted to write a thriller based around the lake. And, you know, we what we did in the first book essentially was jam into it all of the stories that we couldn't tell about Canberra because of defamation law. So some of them perhaps real, some of them perhaps imagined, but all of them sort of believed... But beyond that, and you know, I always said to Steve, we're not writing literature. It is pulp fiction. I do want people to, to read it, but there were a couple of major themes that we wanted to put into the books. And one was the demise of the mainstream media and that that was serious and would have serious implications. And the other was what would the rise of China mean for Australia? And at the time, no matter who you ask, and we're talking about the book, first book comes out in 2012, both sides of politics, everyone in business would say you do not have to choose between our key ally in the United States and our major trading partner in China. We will not have to make that choice. And I thought at the time... One day, one or both of them will make you choose. I mean, it seemed to me inevitable that that was the path that we'd been on. And I'd been to China with Kevin Rudd and sort of, you know, was really optimistic at that at that time, but did see some things that began to really seriously bother me about what was happening in China. They seemed to me to be patently obvious, but they were resisted by almost everyone in politics and almost everyone in business. And so we thought, well, we'll just do that. What we'll do is is – Australia in a position where it's forced to make a choice and China is not benign the United States is not benign you know we weren't actually even taking sides in this if you look at the alliance in the books that we wrote well they don't come out of it particularly well the United States Australia the politicians here or the leadership in China. But then we tried to imagine the kind of characters within that. And at the time, you know, we wanted in the second book to have a Republican president of the United States. Apparently, uh, unfortunately, we had Barack Obama. So we killed him off in the election, and we brought in a guy called Earl W. Jackson III, (laughs) who was a former governor of Mississippi. And he was so desperate to to return America to its past glories. And remember, this is 2014, that his his campaign slogan was the Empire Strikes Back. Back. And he said in his campaign speeches, every made in China tag you see is a pink slip handed to an American worker. So he he set up China as adversary. He was a kind of completely unlikely character to become very right wing populist to become president of the United States. As I say, in twenty fourteen, and the and the and the Chinese president that we did well as we said in the book then well he wasn't a president he was becoming an emperor. And, again, these seem to me to be the trajectories of what was happening in that country, those countries at that time. And I don't think that you had to be a genius to work those things out. But um, so people have said to us since so many of the things that we were sort of talking about in the books came to pass. But they were actually things that were – and John would know, and and Danielle and you would both know from reading journal articles and things at the time, there was a school of thought there. It just wasn't particularly loud in the public discourse. So not claiming to have been necessarily particularly original, but saying, what could happen? And that's to me why, and it's like not fiction, it's the use of imagination national security, the thing that strikes me both, and you also need it in journalism, and people now make the joke, oh, you're journalists, you always make things up anyway. But it seemed to me when I was a chief of staff or when I was a reporter, it was the best journalists were the ones who were able to think, okay, that just happened. What necessarily follows from that? What will be the next steps in that? And that's all these books were attempting to do, saying, well, if you take that and you twist it and it becomes a more malevolent thing, how do we respond? And we still haven't got a China policy. The person who has come closest to it was when when Tony Abbott was asked by Angela Merkel, what is Australia's China strategy? And he basically said, oh, well, it oscillates between fear and greed. And I don't think we've ever changed it.
2: Mm. I'm glad you raised um, imagination was one of the things that I was hoping we would get to is that sort of, you know, many of our major national security crises in hindsight were attributed to a failure of imagination. And um, I know Tom Clancy's book, *Dead of Honor, which featured a pilot flying a 747 into the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., was sort of potentially foreshadowing the September 11 attacks. And so in the Futures Hub, we often use scenarios as a mechanism for stretching the imagination and thinking through complexity. Um John, I know you've done some work with that, uh with us on that, and wondering if you had any insights into what you think the value is of using narrative and uh fiction in a scenario setting to help sort of place policy makers um you know in a real world situation where they have to grapple with tensions and trade offs and make decisions um
3: I didn't think about it for a long time i I was uh, dragged to it like they dragged the you know the speaker up to the chair. I um, uh, it was uh, the Army reached out to me after um, Weapons of Choice came out and, and they asked if I would come down to um, uh, to Canberra and have a chat with their future warfare group about um, future warfare. And I, the way they explained it to me was that when you work inside an institution like the Army, you were taught to do certain things really, really well, and they are, but Outside of those parameters, they they don't get a lot of practice at at acting or thinking, and they they liked the idea of engaging with people who were allowed to let their imaginations run wild across the same territory. And so I I did a couple of sessions with them, uh, and then Mick Ryan, who's now retired from the Army, um, who was a big fan of this kind of – uh you know, uh, imaginative augmentation of, of of scenario planning, uh grabbed a few of us actually, uh Java writers and then sci-fi writers and and asked if we would come down and and do some work in Canberra. And it's uh, to be honest, I don't know how useful it is. Um I found it fascinating. Uh I, I very much enjoyed it and I I think that the, the feedback we got was Uh, just circling back to what I said before, it it allowed people to think outside their boxes, um, or to, you know, to, to get off the rails. Uh, you know, they, uh, you've seen in, in Ukraine, for instance, um, just this explosion and almost metastasization of, of drone warfare and, and not just, you know, the big, you know, expensive, like top shelf drones that, you know, we'll buy two of for 20 or $30 million each, But you know, tiny little $50 drones that you pick up from Kmart or Woolies or whatever and you just stick a grenade on the bottom of them and, and out they come. That, that's something that, uh, yeah. that was something I was playing with as an idea a, a, a couple of years ago. You know, I'm not claiming responsibility for it because lots of people were playing with that idea, but, I you know, I don't know how far it had penetrated into um, the military consciousness until all of a sudden, you know, in that particular conflict, uh, the Ukrainians in particular were faced with the very real possibility of annihilation. And so they just went, right, you know, all bits are off. What have you got? And that's when you start to see these ideas just just spreading like like wildfire, mm,
2: the creativity lets you get that let loose. I guess let loose, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Basically, the, the the conflict blew away all mm. of the the institutional restrictions and demands to think in certain ways, and you, you move very quickly to uh, you know whatever works. Mm. I think um,
2: crises can do that to us, can't they?
0: Yeah, we'll be right back.
1: In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia.
2: Danielle, I'm keen to kind of get into some of your research, but wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how does sort of fiction influence public understanding about the national security space?
4: Yeah, look, I mean, there's um, people far more qualified than I to respond to that question. But I'd just like to pull up on something that both John and Chris alluded to, and that's the capacity of fiction to tackle head on issues that policymakers might be otherwise, for whatever reason, reticent to do so. And so I guess from the public perspective, it allows a discourse about really important um, issues and ideas. And at its core, we can come up with all the academic and practitioner theories in the world to understand something as complex as national security. And I'm a lawyer, and I think the same idea applies um, to how we deal with law reform and, and how that impacts on national security. But at the end of the, the day, these things are inherently human And so fiction, I think, allows us to step outside the restraints of potential um, restrictive theories and think about the human element to this. And so one example we've seen of fiction leading public opinion is, for example, in the US around treatment of um, people in psychiatric institutions. So one flew the cuckoo nest, for example, Um, Of course, it's not solely attributable to that, but it started a public discussion about what a particular aspect of public policy should look like. So I think when fiction authors enter the sphere of national security and vice versa, it does give a a place, I think, to have more public dialogue on how we should be responding to things and and what our future might, might look like, I guess is what I'd say to that. And I think You know, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. I've had colleagues express frustration with some national security fiction not um, accurately portraying what they do. So, I mean, it can work both ways, but I I certainly think it can be a really powerful tool for both um, fiction writers and national security practitioners to sort of engage a bit more in that crossover. I am particularly interested in the empathy point, but you might Mm. raise that later or...? Yeah, we'll get to that. Can I
0: say too, is it's not a shadow of a doubt that fiction influences enormously what happens in fact, and I'll give you a couple of examples. When we were looking at, you know, wanting to recreate what was going on in the US National Security Agency's Intelligence Security Command Information Dominance Center, which is its cyber command, it was actually modeled after the bridge of the starship enterprise that's the uss enterprise I love so that a so fictional much. and and the guy that ran the organization at that time well his parking place was 007 so if you don't think that some of the people and and, and what was the reason mm. he gave for wanting to do this it was because when he when those people stepped into that center he wanted them to have a sense of a futuristic space that they would be in so that's really you know Clearly, uh, you know, had a, a huge effect on on the people who are practitioners in this area. But when you think back through history, uh, fiction, if you like, going back to the time of Alexander the Great, like the Iliad influences his invasion of Persia. You know, Abraham, Beecher, as Abraham Lincoln says to Harriet Beecher Stowe, "So you're the little woman." who wrote the book that started this great war. That's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And as much as that now is derided, that book, that anti-slavery book, drove an enormous amount of public sentiment. And I'm actually interested in hearing from John because John's books do that collision of history and the future, which is not a space a lot of people work in. And, of course, Mm. he's book Leviathan. So, John, how much I'm fascinated to know, and sorry for that, but, you know, just how much does your understanding of the past affect your writing about the future?
3: Uh, quite a bit. Like I, I'm, you know, I, besides having the um, international relations background, my, my other area of study was history. And um, uh, I, I find that um, the sort of emerging field of counterfactuals in history really, really fascinating because it's taken something that people have been working with in genre fiction, which is alternate history, and it's, you know, giving it a – a haircut and a suit and a tie and making it a, a lot more respectable. Um, it's uh, to, to answer what, you know, your question with a couple of examples, Chris, there's um, two that stand out in my mind uh, where fiction writers had um, enormous influence, uh, which wasn't really recognised until much later on. Um, H.G. Wells in uh, I think it was The Shape of Things to Come invented the tank. Hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it was picked up later on. But the, the really, really interesting one was uh, a bunch of science fiction authors in the 20s and 30s, as science fiction authors are want to do, would sit around reading papers and they were reading about early experiments by Enrico Fermi and people like that in atomic power. And they spun this up into a couple of stories about... Uh, a weapon that was, it was a bomb that was so powerful that when it went off it just kept exploding and exploding. And um, one of these stories came out in 1942 and it absolutely sent this jolt of massive fear through the American National Security Establishment because it effectively described the outcome they were working towards with the Manhattan Project, which was, you know, at that point this massive super-secret endeavour to, um, uh, to develop a, an atomic weapon. And um, when they were doing that, they spooled up this huge investigation to try to figure out how these guys had, had got all of this uh, this information because you know, it was mostly on on public records. And what they found was that the scientists in the Manhattan Project were for the most part also uh, massive science fiction nerds, mm. and, you know, they read amazing stories and astounding stories and stuff like that. And, and there was this sort of exchange between the scientific and the literature, which in really weird and unexpected ways had driven uh, these guys, and they were they were mostly guys, unfortunately, at that point, to sit around going, well, maybe we could build a bomb that just, you know, kept blowing up and up and up. And years later on, you get Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki.
2: Yeah, I think some of our listeners might be interested to know that there is some of this really interesting work going on in Australia as well, Um, in Brisbane, actually, John, at the University of Queensland What If Lab. They've uh, formed a consortium of specialist fiction writers and scholars who've come together to explore how creative writing skills can help researchers in diverse fields solve the grand challenges of the 21st century. So not far from you, John, there's some really excellent work going on. The Panel for the Future of Science and Technology in the European Parliament also do some excellent work um, a what-if series of publications. So great resources out there for that sort of what-if exploratory thinking, challenging assumptions, integrating fiction, I think, with um, national security. I'm interested to explore how we think, you know, developing scenarios, fiction, national security, futures, mobilises us to action. So you talked a little bit, Danielle, on sort of public action, bringing people sort of, have I got that right? And empathy. <laughs> oh, we'll get, yeah, we can get to empathy. I'm, I'm, I I'm. actually wanted to ask you whether you'd heard of this um, climate change fiction work, CliFi, they're calling it, on how we might explore climate change futures, whether they be u- utopian, dystopian, and how those sorts of fictional narratives or scenarios might actually mobilise us into action. Does anyone have any thoughts on
4: that? I've not heard of it, but um, as someone who lived through the um, Northern Rivers floods in March, I can tell you there's a plethora of extraordinary human stories um, that could be um, really usefully fictionalised, I think, to think about how we how we move forward on that. But um, no, it may, it may, for all the reasons we've discussed, cli fi makes sense.
2: Do you want to talk to us, uh, Danielle, a little bit on your research into fiction and empathy?
4: Yeah, sure, Um, and I'm sure um, John and Chris are familiar with that too. But there's been um, a couple of interesting studies that have replicated really similar results. And... um, and again, not a psychologist, but um there's a term in psychology and psychiatry called brain theory, which measures certain sort of, I guess, not quite personality attributes but psychological attributes, one of those being empathy. And one thing they've found is with um when they had control groups and so forth is that people who had their brain theory attributes tested prior to reading fiction, actually showed an increase in empathy after having consumed fiction. Um the really funny thing though is it only worked for literary fiction. <laughs> um and it and, and it didn't work for non-fiction. Now of course um you know, popular sort of you know I won't say lowbrow, but popular fun fiction and nonfiction are very valuable for other reasons, <laughs> including a lot of what we've discussed. But I find that quite extraordinary. And I suppose empathy has value not only in itself for moral reasons. So, as policymakers can, if if they have rates of empathy, make some better decision makers and um, more thoughtful decision makers and kinder decision makers, which is great in and of itself. But there's also really practical elements to empathy. Because empathy ultimately allows you to sit from the perspectives of someone else and understand human motivation. And, of course, understanding human motivation is essential to making um, sound and effective national security policy. Any thoughts on that, Chris, from your perspective? Oh,
0: look, you know the, the the hardest part, and you know John's got a lot more experience with it than I have, so I might defer to him in a moment. But if any of these things is trying to have characters who have a different voice and are not just replicating your own, so that was so t- the for me part of the real issue with all of this was to try and 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 work out how characters would think and behave, who was certainly very different from. Me, uh, that, so it's that's in the writing of it, and I think in the reading of it, obviously, you are being presented with an entirely different worldview, and that worldview is something that you can begin to empathise with. Then you might also empathise with the people that are being written about. But uh you know, I think I'd probably defer to John on character development and empathy and those kinds of things.
3: Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that that study, Danielle. It, it's it is fascinating, and it was um, it, it was interesting that. Uh, that that tweak you pulled out that it was mostly literary fiction that had the empathetic effect i mean it, it makes sense when you you think about the nature of uh literary fiction versus genre which you know it's a, it's a massive box of poison vipers i'm about to open up but you know, the, the thing about genre is it, it it does tend to be driven by story and if if people can um you know if 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 they've got the chops as writers to also bring really, you know, deep nuanced characters to the table, that's great, but it's not necessary. Um, people who read genre, they, they like stories. They, you know, the, the most effective genre writers are people who can do do both, um, but it's it's not necessary uh, to be successful, whereas to be a successful literary author, you you do have to be able to you know, take somebody's imagination and, and place it literally inside the lived experience of another person who's not even real. Um, and so it, it makes sense that you would get that incredible empathetic connection. Um, and it's, it, it, it's a, it, it's a fascinating question, which is fascinating partly because we'll never be able to answer it as, you know, to how important those, um, empathy effects are in making a novel oh, i hate this word but i'm going to use it anyway because i can't i'm blanking on anything else in making a novel impactful um you were talking before about uh you know it, it, it would it, it would be great if you know uh Policymakers and and um, and operators and, and agents within the national security space were able to improve their empathy skills, you know, via the the reading of literature because it would just make them better at at, at what they do. Um, almost certainly, but how do you measure something like that? It's it's just not possible. Like um, you know, Winston Churchill was both a great writer, but also a a voracious reader, uh, and it's you know, there's no doubt that he was who he was, and he was able to do the extraordinary thing that he did in the, the Second World War because he had that that background in letters. But you know, he, as, as Kennedy said, you know, he, he marshaled the English language and, and sent it into war.
0: Hmm.
3: But how do you measure? That you can't. It's it's just it's not open to, to quantitative analysis.
0: Yeah, and also predicted at the age of sixteen that London would come under attack and that he would be the person that would lead the defence. <laughs> so an extraordinary capacity, as he said, I can see further into the future than you can. He was right about that much at least.
2: And I think that reading diverse literature is so important to how you think creatively about the future. And Tetlock's work on foxes and hedgehogs, I think, goes to that, you know, wanting to be the fox that scurries around and, and reads lots of information, those people are much better at, um, you know, predicting the future or thinking more creatively about options for the future rather than those that are considered um, deep experts. So I think that's really important to how we think creatively and, and incorporate sort of fiction in storytelling about the future. Um. There is one statement that always sticks with me around fiction and futures is around the present moment used to be the unimaginable future. So what's on your mind, Chris? What sort of strikes you about what's unimaginable that could play out um, going forward that that you've been thinking about that keeps you up at night that perhaps might make its way into a book or two? Yeah,
0: the thing that keeps me up at night is energy. Because we are in the midst of quite a significant transition from one way of producing energy to another, and you were talking about glyphar before. The only thing that I find and you know is in trying to have a conversation to people about energy when most people do not understand where their energy comes from how it's produced how the lights stay on in fact that everything in this room and everything that we see around us is a product of an industrial revolution which was fossil fuels based and in a very short period of time we we intend to make one of the most wrenching changes that we could imagine based on technologies that in some instances are yet to be invented um I find at the moment, and and where you end up with this debate is if if I say, as I have been saying since 2016, if we do not make this transition correctly, then we will destroy our energy systems. And we are in the process of doing that at the moment. The thing that drives me insane is to watch people constantly cutting off our paths of retreat. Let's all agree that we have to make the transition. This is a necessary thing. The question then is, what's the pace of the transition and what are the avenues by which you get there? And at the moment, if you're going to run a grid on wind and solar, it does not work without some sort of storage or some sort of backup. Now we're being told by our energy ministers, and that for me is a clown car that's about to crash into a wall, um, is, is that we will not use gas as a transition fuel. I struggle to see any country on earth that isn't doing that at the moment. And if you look at what's happened in Germany, people keep saying to me, the problem is we haven't gone far enough, fast enough. Well, hang on. Germany went further and faster, spent more than half a trillion euros in doing that, and then when the system was exposed, it was exposed to the fact that it would not work if it wasn't running on Russian gas. And now it's doing all the things that we are saying we're not going to do. It's in the process of building an, a, a, an import facility for liquid national gas in the space of six months. You know, it's now talking about uh, sponsoring fossil fuel development in other countries in order to get it into Germany. So what I find at the moment that I find incredibly frustrating is if I am to say that I think we should make the transition but I think we should be using gas, and we will be using gas for a very long time. And by the way, when we talk about energy systems at the moment, we're only talking about eighteen percent of the problem. The other eighty percent is how do we make cement, how do we make plastic, how do we make ammonia, uh, and how? And and there is a there's a fourth uh, element in in that as well, which is just well, I've lost my my train of thought there. But there are basically four pillars of the industrial revolution: cement, steel. All of these things have fossil fuel embedded in their actual production. So we haven't even begun to work out how we deal with that at the moment. So energy keeps me awake at night because I I do believe that the objective is good and that we need to do it. But the extremists in the debate, and this time I'm talking about the extremists on the left, are saying that we cannot do it by using things that other people are doing. So in Australia, can't use coal, not allowed to use gas as transition fuel, never been allowed to talk about using nuclear energy and at the moment, there are people who are who are campaigning against wind farms in northern Tasmania. So you tell me how we make this transition, which will be one of the most wrenching we've ever made. So possibly some of the passion and what I feel about that's come through at the moment because I genuinely think this is is the question for our time, is how do we make it?
2: So how do we use fiction to tell that story? To mobilize to action and educate
0: people. Well, and it's a huge debate, and people may, may, may deeply disagree. The other thing, too, is that people obviously have very strong views on it, and p- people may may mm. deeply disagree with what I've just said. But so, like I say, from my point of view, that's a hard story to tell because when I've been trying to tell it uh, in the media, it's not one that anyone wants to hear.
2: I think going back to that sort of future perspective and fiction, it's putting people in those imaginable futures, telling that story, and kind of, I guess, Pulling them out of the complexity of today or the the things that are holding us back from making change, I think, can be useful when you-
0: Well, here's a scenario. If you do what, and it all turns out perfectly, and and you electrify absolutely everything. So you've gotten rid of gas as as a a fuel for heating. Uh, You've gotten rid of petrol as a fuel for, for moving cars around, and everything runs off electricity. What happens when the lights go out?
4: This has just um, made me think of something I heard the other day. I do a little bit of work on space and space law, so that's something I think about because access. I know where you're going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was actually at a a, a space workshop the other day and um, a space scientist was sort of mourning the fact that we don't necessarily in Australian culture make hero narratives of our scientists in ways that we perhaps should. And and just sort of listening to Chris take the point, but I'd also just like to see a little more um, focus on science in, in all of this and in the public narrative. And I think that's just going to become a question of, of necessity and I suppose going to your overall question about what keeps you awake at night, A, space, um, but be the social equality element going in on this, um, you know, travelling in, in Pacific Island countries recently, you know, having spent time in areas that have been affected by natural disaster, it's just not an if anymore, as Chris points out. I mean, something has to be done. There has to be an energy transition. It's an existential crisis. Uh, and so I think maybe to sort of loop it back to fiction, maybe we need to, um, Chris and jo- John, yeah, we need to have the hero scientists um coming out which of course you've, you've done to. a lot but we need to have that more in the in the public narrative why don't we as australians laud our scientists and aren't, why aren't we proud of our scientists in a way that we might be of our sports people? and i th- you know into the the climate change debate right there i think mm. Didn't we have our chief scientist recommend I don't think fiction, it, it's fiction not just reading? Us. We did. We did. No, it's not just us. And you're right, John. I think um, Dale was just making the point that Alan Finkel, I think, in you know, a in a speech, told all leaders they should be reading science fiction and um, if they want to lead effectively. But yeah, sorry, I cut you off. You were saying it's not just us. You're right. No. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's right. If you, you, you think about the uh, uh the storytelling culture of the nineteen fifties, uh the hero scientist strides that that culture in a way that they don't anymore. Um and this actually this this comes to the thing that I obsess about at the moment, uh, which is the epistemic collapse of reality or agreed realities altogether. Like uh, all the points Chris was making before about uh uh, the energy transition are all well made and, and I disagree with them about a bunch of them I reckon however we doubtless agree on some base realities and one of the problems that we increasingly have in our discourse is that you know certain elements uh you know far left and far right just uh, just they've unplugged themselves from reality mm. and and they 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 it's not that they don't even accept agreed realities, they are, you know, violent confrontation with reality itself. And I, you know, I, 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 I I'm actually working on a project at the moment, a, a fictional project, to try and uh, imagine what happens when agreed reality is no more, <laughs> um, because it's just, it's not possible to use the tools of the Enlightenment to embiggen our civilization. Um, you know, whether it's with massive fields of, you know, uh, solar panels or, or, or beautiful sort of, you know, chunky little modular nuclear reactors, you, you can't do any of that if you do not have agreed base reality. And I, I think at the moment we we face the epistemic collapse of, of things we've agreed on for hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, and no, I think I couldn't agree with more with that. And and you know it goes, takes us back to Animal Farm, doesn't it? When you talk about what happens through the progress of that book, it is you know things that happen like Snowball was a hero in the Battle of the Cowshed or whatever it was called. But uh then it becomes mm. oh no no, and and over time it ends up being Napoleon who was the hero at that battle because they, they they just keep changing the goalposts of of what reality is. And in the end, you know what we've been talking about today is about information and who controls it, who distributes it. And and we are now in an era, particularly with social media, where – People ghettoise, right? So if you don't want to hear people that you don't agree with, you just unplug and go and mm-hmm. listen to whoever you like. And as John says, it's it's true on the extremes of both sides now who who essentially can construct, you can listen to two people who've seen the same event and they will construct a mm-hmm. completely different reality about what happened. I mean, who could not look, like as we would probably all agree, I assume, at what happened in the Capitol after Donald Trump addressed that crowd and think that's an insurrection, right? That is appalling that a President of the United States would do that talk to some of the people uh, who are Trump supporters and that's not what they saw.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think both of you have made this really interesting point. I'm not sure if any of, um, anyone read the quarterly essay by Walid Ali recently where he talks about the notion of contempt and how that's isolated people who think differently about things from one another and from reality to the point we've sort of in some ways lost the capacity um, to talk to one another. And I certainly saw that play out during lockdowns, you know, being being from the northern rivers. And, and thankfully, ironically, you know, the big floods that followed actually brought the community back together after a period of uh, division and almost unrest actually in terms of what was happening. Um, but ironically, I think this brings us back to the fiction in the sense that, if we don't have an agreed reality in reality where we can talk about it fiction actually provides a genre to be able to explore these issues in ways in some ways that are less confronting to the left right divide so thanks thanks to both of the authors for providing places for that to happen
2: <laughs> any other final thoughts from our guests on what they'd want to share with listeners on the relationship between fiction and national security
0: I just think you need to read widely and voraciously, I think, as as John was saying about the way that that Winston Churchill read about stuff. I think that there's a tendency nowadays, and I'm certainly guilty of it too, of thinking – I'm not reading that because, you know, I, I completely, and utterly disagree with the the worldview. But in fact, if you're not going to actually challenge your worldview about things, and you're not going to ever end up learning anything much about it, and as I say, I fully agree that, uh, and and John is probably dead right. We can have a, a conversation over a beer at some stage. But see, I, I could have a civil conversation, I'm quite sure, with John about things that we would, and and as I do with my wife, who massively disagrees with me on many of these <laughs> things. But th- that's that's one of the things I'd like to see a return to a more civil discord in a, in having these conversations, which is that we need to kick these ideas around uh, to understand that there are different points of view, to accept that on occasions you might actually be wrong and that the other person might have a point of view that's worth listening to. So I think, yeah, sort of try and keep all of the gates open in terms of, uh, you know, because particularly perhaps as the older you get, the more you tend to shut gates off in your mind.
2: Well, I think that's really true. And uh, our world is so complex and getting even more so that we need to be thinking creatively about policy development and problem solving. Danielle, any
4: final comments from you? I think it's John Stuart Mill who said um, he or she who knows her own truth knows a little of that. So just to echo um, Chris's comment about um, breeding wi- widely mm-hmm. and to make this the point that humans have always been storytellers and storytellers have always been important to our societies and, and they will continue to be so.
0: Was an inscription on the statue of Delphi, wasn't it? Know thyself.
4: Mm. And John, any other final comments
2: from you?
3: Uh, I would just say you will feel a hell of a lot better at the end of the day, the literal day, if you spent an hour of your evening or at some point of your day reading a novel instead of doom scrolling Twitter or Facebook (laughs) or, you know, jacking TikTok into your veins. You you just will. You, You will feel better psychologically, emotionally in all different ways.
2: Well, John, Chris and Danielle, thank you so much for your time today and happy reading and
4: writing.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
4: Thanks, Dale.